We've got a big announcement for you guys. But before we give you that, we just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much to every single one of you who's been supporting the show, whether that's on Patreon, Subscribestar, PayPal, whether you're a member on YouTube, whether you've sent a one-off donation, whether you've sent us cash in the post because you didn't want us to know who you are, whoever you are, wherever you are. Thank you so much. But the big announcement is that we are going to be launching on Locals, which is a very special platform that is different to all those other ones we've just talked about. The incredible thing about Locals is that it gives a community feel to the platform, which means that it's a place for people like you if you want to come and talk with like-minded people. Because let's be honest, if you listen to Trigonometry, not everybody likes it. There might be a time where you don't feel comfortable saying certain things, like maybe everyone who voted for Trump isn't a flesh-eating pedo zombie. Hashtag pedo lives matter. Now, uh, the real serious point here is that Locals is completely different to Patreon, subscribes to, and PayPal. With those, it's essentially you're giving us money, you might get something in exchange. But on Locals, what you get is being part of a community. You can post your own memes, you can comment on the latest episodes, you can have conversations about the topics that we raise, you can even talk about why Francis looks like a mole. Absolutely. It is a social media platform. All we've done is eliminate the dickheads. Exactly. And well, we're going to have to let me go then. But <laughs> but anyway, uh, the point is, it's very, very different to everything else. And if you give us the amounts that you give us on Patreon, subscribe to on PayPal. For example, if you give us $25 a month, you still get a mug. If you give us $50 a month, you still get to do a monthly Zoom call with us. If you give us over $200 a month, which some of you top dogs do, uh, then you get a one-on-one -on -one call or meeting with us whenever this lockdown is lifted in 2028. So see you then when we will all be grey-haired, slightly fatter, but still as problematic. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest was on the show a couple of years ago talking about his previous book, The Road to Somewhere, and he's now triumphantly returned here with his new book, Head, Hand and Heart. David Goodhart, welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's great to have you back. Uh, you've written this great book, uh, and a very important one, I, th I think will form the basis of many com political conversations going forward. Um, it's, it's one of a series of books. You're not the only person to have started to talk about the limitations and, in fact, the harms of, quote-unquote, meritocracy. What was your thinking behind the book? And just give everybody a summary of what you're talking about in this. Yeah, um, it sort of uh, it, it carries on somewhat from my last book, The Road to Somewhere, which is about the value divides in our society that have led to, to, to Brexit and Trump and all the, mm. and the, and the mass political alienation. Um, I mean, this book, too, is trying to um, answer that question, trying to understand what it is about our apparently, you know, quite rich and successful modern societies that does seem to be alienating so many of our fellow citizens. And whereas, I mean, in The Road to Somewhere was, as I say, primarily about value divides, uh, par partly to do with, with educational stratification, ed educationally-based value divides, and in this book, I've, I've kind of burrowed down a bit deeper into the, uh, these educational divides and looked more broadly at what it is that our the, the kind of aptitudes and skills that our society values. And I do think uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, one of the elephants in the room is that we have 
particularly in the last 30 years or so, shifted, allocated a huge amount of much more status and reward to one cluster of aptitudes, uh, those related to cognitive analytical ability. And, uh, and that's inevitably kind of drawn away some of the, the prestige and reward that used to go to, to other forms of skill and aptitude that to do with, to do with manual technical skills um, and, and caring and, and emotional um, aptitudes. And I mean, some of this has always been the case. I mean, some of this goes back thousands of years, but it's been very much reinforced in the last generation or two, um, partly by the expansion of higher education in most rich countries with what anything between about sort of 35 and 50% of school leavers going to university now in most rich European countries, even more than 50% in some. Um, and I think this isn't, um, I mean, this is now, I think, think, creating all sorts of dysfunctions in our societies. And it is, um, and it is not just to do with uh, the fact that we have, you know, while sending more and more people into very academic forms of education, we have huge skill shortages and skilled trades, the, you know, middling technician-type jobs. One of the reasons given for the failure of the testing system at the moment is we don't have enough white-coated lab technicians. We've got lots, lots of academic scientists, but not, not enough technicians to, to do the kind of more practical hands-on work. We have huge recruitment crises in all the caring professions. Uh, we certainly did before the pandemic. I mean, I think one of the positive things about the pandemic is apparently recruitment into nursing courses has, has risen as a result of the kind of attention on the on the kind of heroic work that people have been doing in the care sector. <clears throat> so we've got, we've got things out of alignment. So we're, we're overproducing um, kind of low, middle and lower level sort of cognitive, uh, cognitively trained people for whom increasingly there are not going to be the jobs because we've reached what I call peak head. Um, <laughs> we've, we've found, um, particularly, you know, in the last five or ten years, the, the, the number of sort of cognitive professional jobs has not been growing at the pace that it, that it used to grow. There was, a, there was a reason for expanding higher education. Uh, there, there, there was a rationale for it going back 30, 40 years. But that rationale has now come to an end. Um, and yet, and yet the, the system is still on kind of automatic pilot, churning out more and more graduates, most of whom, many of whom are not getting the high-status, high-paid jobs that they expected. So we're, we're creating a crisis of, of, of expectations. Uh, about a third of, of graduates are not in graduate employment between five and ten years after they graduate. The, the graduate income premium has, has fallen from an average of sort of 50 60% to, to below 10% for many people, particularly men from non-elite universities. <clears throat> so a, a, a lot of things have got out of kilter. But I think it's, but it's more than just a, an economic question. It's also to do with, um, with a kind of broader sort of culture, psychology of the country almost, that the idea of what it is to be a successful person has become far too narrowly focused on cognitive ability. That, that you know, the, the people who are most respected and who are most rewarded are the people who pass exams at school, go to a more or less good university, have a more or less successful professional career. And, um, and what is more, there is now only essentially kind of one ladder into that zone of safety and success. And, and it's not surprising that so many kids and their parents want to still 
travel along that uh, that that motorway into the it's all it's very it's very clearly signposted it's it's still despite high uh, tuition fees it's still hugely subsidized by the taxpayer and it is you know it's the it's become completely automatic now for for most of the middle and upper middle classes in this country i mean it's true some working class people go go into higher education too um, but it's but one of the reasons for the slowdown in social mobility I mean, all of the things that are claimed by the advocates of expanded higher education um, have have really I mean one has to be pretty skeptical about you know we don't have the right skills for a highly productive economy uh, social mobility has declined not increased in the time that higher education has been expanding and that's partly because it has been so monopolized by one section of society um, and, and there used to be, there used to be lots of little ladders up. There's now one big ladder up. You know, if you don't, if you don't get into that, uh, you know, if you don't do A levels and, and go to a decent university, um, you know, your life chances are quite likely to be not necessarily, but are quite likely to to to, to be lower than somebody who does. And uh, I think you know, you only have to go back 30, 40 years, and there were lots of lots of different pathways to leading a successful life. And um, David. David- there's a question that I want to ask, which is, how much responsibility do John Major and Tony Blair need to take for this? John Major, number one, because he turned all the polytechnics into universities. And number two, with Blair saying that 50% of the population yeah. should go to university. And when quizzed about this, it turned out it was just an arbitrary figure. Um, yes, I mean, I think, I mean, it's not really about allocating blame, but but I do think perhaps particularly... You haven't met Francis very often. <laughs> it is on trigonometry, David. That's what we do. He loves guilty the, men. He yeah. loves it. How much responsibility does this need to take? That It's all about taking... Listen, I'm Catholic, all right? Come yeah. on. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think there was a kind of... There was a lack of emotional intelligence. I mean, this sort of, in a way, goes back to my previous book and mm. the argument about kind of anywheres and somewheres. And anywheres, you know, the anywhere worldview, which tends to be pro-mobility and openness and autonomy, perfectly decent and legitimate worldview, just as the somewhere worldview is, you know, with its um, greater attachment to famili- familiarity and, and locality and so on. Th- these are both decent worldviews. The problem was, problem is that anywheres in the last 30 or 40 years have become too powerful and dominate our culture and our society. And they think they're doing it in the national interest, but often actually they're pursuing their own priorities. And this is a very good example of it, I think. The fact that Tony Blair could give that speech in 1999 saying that we want 50% of school leavers to go straight to university showed um, not only the extent to which the Labour Party had kind of lost connection with its sort of original voters, um, but it was just sort of psychologically um, uncurious. I mean, I, I talk in the book about what I call the 1550 problem, that when 15% of people you know, go back 40 years, uh, or even when I was at university, I mean, what, 8 or 10% of school leavers went to university. So the kind of the graduate elite was much smaller. And there's obviously something to be said for the graduate elite being bigger and more democratic. Um, but, you know, inclusions create their own exclusions. And that actually when only 10 or 15% of people in your class or school or town were going to college and you weren't, it didn't matter. You know, you went and worked in a local office or factory and life went on. But when 40 or 50% are going and you're not, it's a completely different ballgame. And, uh, and nobody seems to have thought about that. I mean, you know, um, in, in the late 1990s when they, were, when they were expanding, well, the big expansion came, as you say, when, when polytechnics became universities in 1992, 
Um, but then this 50% target um, in 1999, nobody seems to have given any thought to that. And I think, um, uh, you know, and, 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 the, and, the, and these, I mean, what did they imagine? That sort of 50% would become 100%? Um, I mean, and I think, uh, I mean, part of it is a perfectly decent, and I have this argument now with David Willits and Andrew Adonis and others who are much more wedded to the, the, the higher education status quo. Indeed, David Willits partly designed it. You know, and, there, and there's a perfectly decent instinct behind the desire not to kick away the ladder. Mm. You know, and I often get, you know, as a sort of, you know, as a sort of personal attack, well, it's all right for you. You know, you went to a Russell Group University, your children do, um, you know, but now you want to sort of kick away the ladder and force everybody to, to go to, to do, you know, technical courses at the local FE college. Um, well, I mean, that, that's, that seems to not be, you know, that, that sort of getting it the wrong way around. I mean, we should, you know, when we're, when we're arguing about this or trying to think about this, we should sort of look at the bigger public interest to begin with. So what is it actually in the interest of this country to do in terms of how many people can actually benefit from? How many people is it appropriate should go to, you know, properly rigorous, academically rigorous uh, higher education? And, and, of course, much of our higher education has ceased being um, properly rigorous. But, I mean, you know, if we want to keep, a, you know, really proper, decent, rigorous, academic higher education, you know, w- what is the proportion of the population that, sh- that should go from the point of view of the kind of public interest, given all the other things that we also need done in our society that don't necessarily require um, higher-level academic qualifications? But and even, that- David, even from, a, from the perspective of the individual interest, the, the economic figures you described, the decline mm. in, in the mm. graduate premium, uh, the rising tuition fees, the huge debts that graduates yeah. are now accruing, it, it would seem to me that 20 or 30 years ago when the argument was going to university is good for you, then of course you'd want to increase the number of people who'd go. Now that argument is starting to look increasingly unsound, particularly given that, as you say, there's been a huge dilution in the quality of many of the courses that people are doing. So if you've come out of a second grade university with a Mickey Mouse degree and whatever, um, you're, Tutor in drama from Essex University. Thank you. That's, that, I was talking about Francis <laughs> exactly there. Uh, then, then but a tutu meant something in those days. Yeah, I'm not that old, David. Yeah. For fuck's sake! It, it meant that you were very, very much below average. That's what it meant in those days. Uh, but, but you take my point, which is. From an individual perspective, it no longer seems necessarily to make sense. Sure, if you are gifted in the head, as you talk about, then you may continue to benefit from that. But it seems like what you're really saying, and and certainly something I, I think a lot of people would agree with, is there are a lot of people now who are being pushed into that sort of education, which actually hurts them rather than benefits them. Absolutely, yeah. And and, I mean, it's another basic thing that people seem to have overlooked is that there's a kind of something called the law of diminishing returns. Mm. You know, that you cannot, when when 50% of the population are going to university, you're obviously going to have a lower return than when only 10 or 15% go. And the whole whole ball game is a different one. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we've, we've, we, we, as I say, we've, we've sort of got things out of kilter, but now the system has so much vested interest behind it too. And also we have a situation where 40% of jobs in the British economy are graduate only. You know, more and more professions that don't have you know, graduate status, like nursing, policing now is coming up, it's going to be graduate only in, in a few years' time. More and more, uh, because there's a, uh, you know... 
If you can't beat them, join them. I mean, you know, in a society in which all the prestige seems to be going to people, you know, with, with degrees, the sort of graduate, the mass graduate elite, if you like, um, everybody, everybody wants a part of that. You know, aren't we as policemen sort of, you know, shouldn't we be respected too? And, and, the, and the only path to respect has become going through that funnel into, into higher education. And it's become dysfunctional. Um, and, you know, like I say, there used to be many more ladders up. You used to be able to get promotion from below. You don't really get promotion from below any longer. You know, if you were an able, able kid and you, you, know, you hadn't done very well at school, and I say that this happens to a lot of people now. People, some people are late developers and, and don't do very well in their exams. Um, but, you know, their, their lives are now much more precarious, I think, than would have been the case um, in, the, in the relatively recent past. If you, were, if you didn't do well, you'd st- you still had, had the opportunity in most big organisations, if, if you were capable, you'd be spotted and you would kind of rise up through the ranks. Now you have to have a degree or even a postgraduate degree before you get in the front door in the first place. And so I think, you know, and, and also we just, you know, the amount of kind of national resource that is invested in 18, 19-year-olds going into higher education, many of whom aren't, aren't going to benefit from it particularly. I mean, they're just not mature enough. You know, wouldn't it be far better, I mean, that, to say, you know, go and do a pretty basic job in software development or coding or whatever. And then, you know, if you are, if you do have a kind of intellectual interest in it and you want to find out, as it were, the kind of logic and the maths or the physics or whatever it is behind, uh, behind what you're doing, you know, go and do a degree in computer science five or ten years later. You'll probably, you, you'll enjoy it a lot more. You'll get much more out of it and you'll probably be a much more useful person economically too. Um, uh, David, isn't part of the problem that with globalisation, a lot of these menial jobs, they simply don't exist anymore. So kids have less choice when it comes to choosing a career path. And it seems that for them, university might be the only option in some ways. Um, it's true that, 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 that both kind of trade and, and technology and automation have, 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 have caused a lot of old-fashioned blue-collar jobs to disappear. That is certainly true, but we have huge skill shortages in this country, huge skill shortages in the skilled trades and, you know, lorry drivers. You know, we've got a, we've got a shortage of lorry drivers. I mean, that, you know, perhaps partly because people, people read the papers and they think, oh, well, this is one of those jobs that's going to be, you know, we're going to have, uh, you know, what is it, robotic cars, what's the phrase? Um, um, uh, yeah, automated cars. Yeah, um, you know, and, and lorries are, are perhaps in the front line of that. So people are not are not doing HGV um, courses and so on. But we, and, and as I said earlier, I mean, the, those kind of, the, the, we, got the, we got a missing middle in, in, in our training system. The old, you know, in the language of international education, level three is A-levels and level six is a, is a degree. Level four, five, we used to have hundreds of thousands of people doing these kind of higher technical manual um, qualifications usually spending some time in a polytechnic before the polytechnics became universities um, and, and sort of doing it on the job, part-time courses and sandwich courses and so on. And, and all, all of that is not completely disappeared. But, I mean, you, you have kind of a few thousand people doing those courses because the people that used to do those courses, you know, their children have, have gone to university or many of them have gone to university. And they're doing dilute versions of what, what our kind of political class elite, um, you know, Many of whom went to the very best universities think, you know, thought, you know, in a, in a perfectly sort of generous-spirited way, they thought, well, 
why shouldn't everybody else have this have this experience without really sort of thinking it through? Because by definition, not everybody can have that experience. I mean, both because there is a limit on the number of people who are who are clever enough to really take advantage of it, um, but also because it's bound to be a sort of diluted version of the kind of experience that that the, that the Tony Blairs and the Gordon Browns might have had, um, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Um, and, you know, is a diluted version of that um, sort of elite academic experience really better than, um, you know, doing a, doing a technical qualification at a polytechnic? I mean, given that, you know, we're talking about the, the level of ability, I mean, you know, most of us are in the middle when it comes to ability, you know, no, right, speak for yourself, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, Constantine will be in the top 15. Or, or in the bottom, it depends who you ask. <laughs> and then, you know, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, intelligence researchers will say, you know, there's kind of 15% with you know, yeah. very high yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, raw intelligence, as it were. I mean, intelligence is a complex, I mean, I have a whole chapter on it. It's very mm-hmm. context-dependent and, and complex and... Um, and, and one can't speak too confidently about it. But, I mean, I think intelligence researchers will say there are, there are people who do have um, that, that very high level of, of kind of raw intelligence, and there are 15% of people at the bottom who are a bit slow. Mm-hmm. But most of us are in the middle. So most of the people that are going to university now mm. um, are probably no brighter than the people who are not going to university, mm. most of the people who are not going to university. So it's not about... Um, it's not about ability. I mean, it's about uh, well, it's about sort of convention in a way. Now it's become- right, which brings it very much us to the point that you cover in detail in the book, which is meritocracy. Mm. Do you have a business? Do you want to make the most of your business? Do you want to advertise online but don't know where to do it? Well. How about you advertise with trigonometry? We have over 200,000 subscribers across the different platforms. We sometimes get up to 3 million views a month for our videos, and it's a great opportunity to showcase your product. So if you want your product or business to stand out amidst all the nonsense that is happening, drop us a line at marketing at triggerpod.co.uk. That's marketing at triggerpod.co.uk and we will do our very best to help your product stand out. And when we say stand out, what we really mean is get cancelled. <laughs> what, what's, and and it's, it's, it's something that you and others are, are criticising uh, as, as something that no longer works or perhaps never worked. Uh, what, what, define, first of all, for people, who, you know, to most people, the idea of meritocracy is the people who are good get the rewards and the people who are not good don't. What's wrong with, yeah. with that? Um, nothing is wrong with that, mm. essentially. Um, um, the, yeah, so, so meritocracy seems like a completely um, fair idea. Mm. That, you know, the people, I think Mike, Michael Young, who coined the term, uh, was actually a critic of meritocracy. He was, a, he was an egalitarian socialist, and he didn't like um, the fact that people were differentially rewarded for whatever quality. You know, he didn't like traditional societies where, you know, you were rewarded because you happened to be born into a landed family. Um, he, he didn't like the fact that you may have uh, been born into a, a family um, or you may have inherited, um, uh, you know, well, both sort of through genetics and culture, you inherited various advantages um, when it comes to the cognitive meritocracy. Um, he, he thought that, that was as much of a lottery 
as being born into a landed family in the 19th century, say. Uh, so he was against it for, for socialist reasons. Um, um, but, but, but obviously there is a common sense appeal about the idea that obviously it makes sense for people who are the most uh, able. I mean, you know, we, we want the most appropriate people in the, in the right jobs, mm-hmm. uh, particularly when it comes to top jobs. You know, you want your, you know, you want your top nuclear physicists to be in charge of your nuclear research program. You don't want it chosen by lottery. You don't want to be... <laughs> you don't want to be... Otherwise op- you get Chernobyl. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to be operated on by someone who failed their surgery exam. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that is, is common sense, which is why actually the, the critique of meritocracy has very limited political appeal, I think. I mean, it's, it has much more appeal in the, in the kind of university seminar room than it does sort of out on the street. Having said that, I think um, meritocracy has been a disappointment. I mean, meritoc- I mean the, it, so, it, so Michael Young coined the term back in the late 50s and, and wrote this book that was a kind of satire on it. Um, uh, you know, the idea of kind of IQ plus effort um, you know, equals merit, and therefore, you know, and he, he described a society in which people were ruthlessly screened for their for their IQ, and you, and created an elite, and uh, of course, it became a self perpetuating elite, as it tends to do. I mean, this is one of the, one of the problems with meritocracy. Um, there's some American philosopher who says, or says, well, it's fine. Of course, everyone everyone is in favour, surely, of us being sort of. Uh, ruled by the clever, but you just wait until you're ruled by the clever's children, and then by the the clever's children's children. You know, there's a tendency of it to become oligarchic. Um, And to some extent, that's probably unavoidable. I mean, one doesn't have to sort of speculate even about the sort of, you know, genetic inheritance of intelligence. I mean, it's sort of inevitable in society, in free societies where parents are able to hand on their advantages to their children... Uh, they will do so. Mm. It's the strongest human instinct. Exactly, really. it's a very strong human instinct. And you don't even need, pri- you know, lots of countries, even if we abolish private schools tomorrow, all of this would happen. Private schools is obviously one way that it happens in, in this country. Um, and that has proved a much more powerful factor, I think, than most people expected. I mean, indeed, you might even say mass education has been a bit of a disappointment to egalitarians going back 150 years. And in more recent times... Meritocracy, although originally, as I say, um, term was coined as as, as a critique, but it became something the left, but originally I think the centre-left took up as a kind of banner in the the kind of 80s, 90s. After, I mean, it was kind of New Democrats, New Labour time. They were looking for a new story because they'd effectively accepted much of the political economy of the centre-right. Um, you know, the sort of Thatcher-Reagan reforms, they reformed them a little bit at the margin, but they broadly accepted that they needed new stories. I think one of them was probably <clears throat> culture, you know, support for minorities, um, you know, being pro-immigration and so on. But I think the other story was meritocracy. It was kind of easier for the centre-left, perhaps because the centre-right was a sort of more of a defender of privilege and therefore less inclined to meritocracy. Although, in fact, of course, I mean, Margaret Thatcher may not have talked very much about meritocracy, but but kind of under her, the Tory party definitely changed its sort of style and image. You know, it was, you know, what was the joke? How, you know, it used to be the party of, you know, run by people who owned estates and now it was taken over by estate agents. <laughs> um, um, uh, and so actually the centre-right went along with the, the, the idea of merit. I mean, it became a complete political census. It has been a political consensus now for mm. 30 or 40 years. Of course, everybody is obviously in favour of meritocracy. I mean, 
but it has been a great disappointment, which is why you now have this spate of books. You've got Michael Sandel, The Tyranny of Merit. You've got Daniel Markovitz's book, The, the Meritocracy Trap. You've got um, Kwame Anthony Appiah, who's written a book on it. Um, but, it, I mean, I think the, one of the reasons why, perhaps particularly in America, um, people on the left have turned against meritocracy is because it's at the time when meritocracy has been most, you know, has been on the kind of banners of most of mainstream, most of the mainstream political party flags, um, has been a time of grotesque increases in inequality and only rather limited increases in social mobility. So it just, it's proved much harder to have, have anything much more than a partial meritocracy. Now, a partial meritocracy is probably better than not having one at all, you know, going back to kind of, we don't want to go back to nepotism, uh, but it's proved much harder, I think, than people expected. Um, so people have been, have been questioning both, it's kind of meritocracy gets two barrels in a way. It gets, first of all, it's not meritocratic enough. You know, it's not, it's not working according to how it should be. But the second point is that it's, we don't really like it in principle anyway. Now, the reason we don't like it in principle is that what's so clever about turning society into a competition that the most able win and most of the rest feel like failures? That, is, that, that doesn't sound like an ideal society, does it? So, so, I mean, my answer to this is that, yes, of course, we, you know, we, meritocracy is unavoidable at the level of the labour market, at the level of job allocations, and to some extent the, the allocation of merit too. But it is not and should never be seen as an ideal. It's a kind of pragmatic labour market principle, like I said about the kind of nuclear physicists. You know, you want the right people in the right jobs. Um, and, you know, how they are awarded is a sort of broader economic and social question. Uh, but you want the right people in the right jobs. But you do not necessarily... But it's not an ideal to have society turned into a competition in which the most able win and, and the others feel like failures. So there is a sort of... There is a distinction between meritocratic selection for jobs, which even Michael Young would accept. I mean, you know, and all of the, all of the recent meritocracy critics, you know, because it's just common sense. No one is in favour of you know, lotteries for surgeons. Um, so everyone agrees with that. And yet we also don't like the idea of a meritocratic society. You can see why that, how that's quite a hard thing to sell on the doorstep. Mm. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, there is a distinction, I think. It's, it's slightly comparable to the, you remember the French socialist Leonor, Lionel Jospin talked about being in favour of a market economy but not a market society. I think it's sort of analogous to that. Um, so, I mean, I think where, where I think I differ slightly from the Sandels and the Markovitzes is saying, let, let's not, we, we, we can't abolish meritocracy. It, you know, it, it's, it's the worst system apart from all the others. Mm -hmm. um, but what we can do is shift the focus of what we are valuing. So my focus is more on the prefix to meritocracy, which is cognitive. So, I mean, I, I want to shift some of the reward and esteem that is going to the winners of the cognitive meritocracy, as it were, to, to, to the other aptitudes, to, to, the, to the manual technical and craft and the, and the, kind of, and the emotional and, and caring jobs. And actually, um, and I think, I, think I think we've got a lot of room to do that. I mean, I think we can sort of spread the idea of merit rather than abolish it. And, and I mean, let, let me just give you an example from, particularly from the care economy. 
So if you ask an economist, you know, why is it that people in care homes are so poorly paid? They will say, because anybody can do it. And what they mean by that, I mean, this is an example, I think, of what I call cognitive creep. What they're, they're sort of judging those jobs by sort of cognitive um, exam standards. You know, I mean, pretty well anyone can get a job mm. in, a, in a care home. You, don't, you, don't, you, know, you barely need GCSEs, I think. Um, and, but, the, but at the same time, they're completely wrong about the fact that anybody can do it. Mm. You only have to spend 10 minutes mm. in, a, in a hospital or a care home. And, you know, there are, like any walk of life, there are good carers, there are okay carers, and there are crap carers. Um, but we don't, we don't sort of have the means of, of sort of differentiating uh, or not so easily in, in the kind of care sector as we do for cognitive jobs. Right. So it's, a bit like, it's a bit like saying anyone can do surgery mm. if you don't think about the consequences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit like that. In a way, yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, the problem will become more immediate in surgery yeah. because, you know, <laughs> yeah. someone on, you know, on the table will bleed to death, yeah. you know. Whereas in a care home, you know, you can be a not very good carer and, every, you know, the other carers will know you're probably not a very good carer, um, but you'll probably be on the same pay as the people who are the good carers. Yeah. And, and I, I suppose the logic of what I'm saying is, you know, we should have more differential, differential pay in, um, in, in some of these fields. But doesn't that attitude betray a certain type of arrogance, which is bred by our school system? That, you know, the surgeons of this world would have been getting great grades all the way through. They've been set one of every class. And then the ones who have got other skills, other abilities, maybe caring, mm. maybe more technical, maybe more hands-on, they would be in the lower sets. So right the way through from your school education, you were told that yeah. you were worth less than the people in the top sets. Yeah. And perhaps to some extent that's unavoidable. I mean, uh, I, mean I mean, I think the problem is not so much, I mean, you know, the very, very highest level of kind of, you know, of raw intelligence or stroke academic ability is always going to be very highly valued. And I mean, I don't want to give the impression that I'm hostile to intelligence. I mean, you know, you know as a human species, we need are really, really intelligent people, probably more than ever. I mean, you know, we need them to invent a bloody vaccine for COVID-19. Mm. You know, we, we need people to work out how to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. I mean, there are all sorts of problems that we have posed ourselves as a species in, in recent decades because of what we've been up to as human beings. And, you know, we now need the clever people to sort of come to our aid and find technical fixes to a lot of these problems. Um, and, and I think... Um, you know, and, and we should value high intelligence, um, you know, and, and, and people who do those jobs more than someone who, who cleans your office here um, in terms of, not, not as human beings, but in terms of the rewards, the rewards they I love get. the way David thinks we actually can afford to pay a cleaner. <laughs> we do it ourselves. Those people are very low IQ, David. I promise you. Um, oh, it's looking very clean. Good job, lads. <laughs> well, the, if there's one thing we can do, it's, it's do the hoovering. Yeah. Um, but, David, I mean, the, the idea that um, these other forms of work should be valued and yeah. forms of intelligence, which is what you're really talking about, emotional intelligence and being able, you know, like I think I'm probably intellectually quite intelligent, but when it comes to putting a shelf together or whatever, I'm yeah. I'm a cretin, yeah. right? Correct. So, and there, are, thank you, mate. <laughs> you are even worse though, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't. But um, but there are people who who are insanely gifted when it comes yeah. to things like that. They're, to me, what they do is magic. But you know, I was thinking about this, like my plumber. I, I speak to him when he comes to service the boiler. He makes way more money than me. Yeah. 
But if you were to ask somebody, you know, who's cooler or more high status? Mm. Say Che de Palma. No, mm. they really wouldn't, right? <laughs> which is, which is, I think, the point that you're making. Yeah, I mean, status normally, status and money are usually quite closely linked, but but they but they they do diverge sometimes. You know, there are, um, you know, I mean, perhaps somebody like you who doesn't earn a huge amount, or some, you know, an artist in a garret, you know, who who produces some decent art, but not not well known enough, celebrated enough to to earn a decent living from it. Uh, you know, people like you know Giles Fraser, you know, clergymen, um, you know, who have high status, but 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 um, they're as poor poor as church mice. Um, so, but but most of the time, uh, you know, and, and and plumbers do get very well paid, and that and and the market market signals, I think, are going to contribute to to the shift because, I mean, just to to finish my thought on. I mean, obviously, we all agree high intelligence is valued. I mean, this is not an argument against intelligence. I suppose my argument is that that, that we've created below the, the kind of level of the, mm. of the genuine, the, the real knowledge creators, there's a sort of enormous, great, bloated cognitive bureaucracy of people who are no more able, as I said earlier, than the people who are not going to university. Mm. And we've created this sort of dilute version of the elite experience, which I think is, which is, you know, if you if you want to blame people, it was you know the, the the anywhere political class of the kind of 1980s and the 1990s who were saying rather narcissistically, you know, you can all be like me, you can all be like us, and actually, you know, uh, you know, for, for various kind of logical and other reasons, it's not possible for that mm. to be the case. You know, we you know we do need a spread of 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 aptitudes and abilities to make the system work, and we have aging societies. We need. You know, tens of thousands of specialist dementia nurses. Now, you know that is a that is a, a head and a heart job. Most of these, I mean, head, hand, and heart. You know, as one or two reviewers have pointed out. I mean, perhaps I, I, I mean, I do make it clear in the book that obviously the three are incredibly intertwined. Everything you do, you know, what we're doing now is a mixture of cognitive, emotional, embodied. Um, but nonetheless, there are certain certain roles that that require more of one than the other. Um, and I think it's going to happen anyway. I mean, this is the my kind of peak head point is that, you know, while I was writing the book, well, when I started writing the book at the beginning of 2019, I sort of thought this is, um, uh, I thought it was a rather kind of idealistic notion in a way, almost a bit new agey. Mm. I also discovered that Head, Hand, Heart is the motto of Beedale's school, the progressive <laughs> English private school. Um, but the more I read about what was, what's happening with AI and and what's already happening, I mean, both with the kind of diminishing returns from the graduate class, and and what's happening with you know um, you know bank managers being replaced by algorithms, and you know, and we're in the foothills of of AI. It hasn't even really moved in on the large scale. But the work of people like Phil Brown and Hugh Lauder on digital tailorism. So many jobs did involve a degree of sort of professional judgment and, and, and analytical ability are now being replaced by, by sort of thinking machines. You know, what's happened to blue-collar work is now happening to kind of the, the middle and lower levels of the, of the, of the cognitive. So it's, a, it's that, yeah, we've created this sort of bloated sort of cognitive um, graduate class that is not doing, as it were, the really, you know, the really useful um, knowledge work. Um, um, and and I mean, but they're simply not going to. Many of these people are not going to have jobs in in fifteen years' time. So there's going to have to be a redistribution, and where the redistribution will go, will it will go into care and to some extent manual technical functions that that we that we have a shortage of at the moment. 
Um, now, and some of those manual technical jobs will get taken over by technology too. But um, but you know, but education, you know, the, the care economy, and one of the interesting stories there, I think, is the whole gender imbalance and whether we will start to see as part, you know, as as we have to as we have to value those jobs more. And obviously, look, not all jobs in the, in the public care economy are undervalued. I mean, you know, doctors and nurses are actually, actually have quite high status. And nurses are not poorly paid in this country. It's a bit of a myth. Hmm. I mean, I interviewed somebody for the book who's only three years out of, uh, out of um, doing a, 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 a nursing degree, and they were on 36 grand. Hmm. Um, admittedly, that's, I mean, they actually work at a hospital just around the corner from here. Um, that includes London allowance and some uh, anti-social hours working, but but nurse, nursing suffers perhaps from a sort of compressed pay band. So a lot of there's something like nearly seven hundred thousand registered nurses in Britain, only half of whom are actually working as nurses. And that I think is because a lot of a lot of nurses, mainly women, go off and have families, and then the idea of coming back into a really high stress, huge responsibility job for Perhaps not that much more than thirty-six grand doesn't seem that appealing. Mm. Uh, so we probably so anyway. But, but um, so I mean, a lot a lot of care jobs are are reasonably well paid, but a lot are not, and we're going to have to do something about those. I mean, I'm sure we will. You know, social care was high on the government's list just before the pandemic struck. It's now even higher on their list of things to do things about because because uh, they they got um, they had um, such a disastrous uh, crisis. Um, so I think. I think that that will happen. And people sort of say, oh, you know, people, hard-headed people sort of say, oh, well, but, you know, the market economy chooses, doesn't it? I mean, you know, the market allocates reward and therefore, to some extent, prestige. Well, it does, but behind the market stands human beings Mm. and human priorities. And, you know, you think of, look at the business plans of big corporations um, and how... They've been radically changed, um, or some more than others, in the last 20 years by things like the concern for gender equality or anxieties about uh, about the environment. Um, and you know, and and, and the, so the, the, the signals shift. The signals mm. do shift. Um, so, and I think the signals will shift in this respect. And indeed, they already are. Um, and I think you will see. And that may be that may be accelerated by more men going into caring jobs. Um, and Because uh, at the moment, you know, what, 88% of NHS nurses are women, 85% of primary school teachers are women, 82% of people who work in social care are women. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the removal of the glass ceiling um, and the much greater opportunity that women have in in, in Britain and countries like Britain in the last 30 or 40 years has, has, has sort of de-gender segregated a lot of the sort of upper, a lot of the kind of cognitive meritocracy jobs, a lot of the professional jobs where, where at least, are at least 50% women now and, and women more than 50% of women, universities are, are more than 50% female at the undergraduate level. Um, but, at, but at, in other areas of life, the, the, the life could, continues to have this very, very big gender division of labor and i think that is one of the things that will that will shift why well because it because it'll have to <laughs> um well i mean you know one of the reasons why we have recruitment crises in caring jobs is for the benign reason that that women have many more options now go back 
you know, in our mothers, certainly in our grandmother's time, the, I mean, the opportunities for women, you know, you could only, you know, if you were a capable woman, the opportunities didn't extend much beyond being a teacher or a nurse. Mm. Um, so the public services got a huge free lunch. I mean, you know, right up until the 70s and 80s in this country, you'd have incredibly capable women whose daughters, or, or, or you know, who, who, you know, yeah, whose daughters would be, you know, partners in city law firms, um, they were headmistresses of primary schools or, you know, ward matrons in, in hospitals. So, um, and that, you know, and that has changed, and, and quite rightly, and you know, women have much greater opportunities. Um, and, uh, but men haven't stepped into the breach so far. Um, and I think, I mean, will they? I mean, I think they'll have to, because, I mean, partly it'll start to become more attractive um, because, because pay will have to go up. Um, because we simply need people to, to do these jobs. I think we will start to value it more. I mean, we, we've always valued it to some extent. I don't want to exaggerate. Um, but we certainly know this is one of the effects of the pandemic, I think, is that a lot of the, not just caring jobs, um, but a lot of the sort of basic, basic sort of non-college educated functions that keep the show on the road, you know, van drivers and lorry drivers and people who work in supermarkets and people who stack shelves in supermarkets. Now, I mean, you know, they are never going to be paid a king's ransom, mm. but, um, but you know, if, if people recognise the kind of, our interdependence, our dependence on people doing basic jobs like But that. don't you think the pandemic has helped for that when all of a sudden yeah. people were stuck at home and then they just went, hang on, you know, all yeah. the, you know, I may be, you know, a social media manager at Facebook and, and whatever else, yeah. But actually, I'm not that important compared to the bloke yeah. or the lady who works at Tesco's and, no, absolutely. and yeah, puts, yeah. you know... Yeah. yeah, and we used to... I think I actually did possibly frighten my children with the idea that if they didn't do their homework, they would end up stacking shelves in, in Tesco's. Mm. And it turns I out... I like that, people... that you're middle class, not little, Tesco's. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out... Little that... would be way too scary for them if <laughs> they couldn't handle well, that. Daddy, what's a little? Don't worry. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, and of course, I mean, I, yeah, I'd still rather my children didn't stack mm -hmm. shelves in Littles or Tesco's. Um, but nonetheless, um, I think, you know, we do post, or not that we are completely post-pandemic, but we, we do kind of, those people are less invisible than they were. Mm, yeah. um, and, and, you know, there are lots of basic jobs that will always need to be done. And... Um, it's one of the kind of mistakes that economists always make. They're always sort of, I, remember, I remember when I was uh, Labour editor of the FT in the early 90s, all, all these people predicting the complete disappearance of kind of low-skill employment. And actually, Gordon Brown, in his famously, I think it was his penultimate speech as uh, Chancellor in 2006, was it? Uh, predicted there would be 600,000 low-skill jobs in Britain by, I think maybe in about now, 2020, mm. or maybe in 2025. Depending on how you define low skill, there's something like 10 million. I mean, mm. <laughs> you know, they just got it so wrong. Um, lo lots of technical change generates actually quite, you know, like kind of Amazon, Amazon warehouses. Um, of course, they replace some jobs in retail, but they, they create a lot more jobs. And one of the one of the, the sort of biases of the sort of anywhere worldview, I think, has been this idea that a job has to be a form of self-expression. Mm. Um, and if you look at the surveys, about half of people in Britain and America say that work is just a, a means of earning a living. 
I mean, whether they would like it to be a form of self-expression is another question. Perhaps some of them would. But I think many people actually do just want to go to work and earn a living. They get their sense of purpose and meaning from things outside work. So long as work is decently enough paid, you know, that you're treated well, you have opportunities for advancement and so on, these are not necessarily terrible jobs. And also, if you are recognised by society as doing something valuable, which someone stacking shelves in a supermarket is. Um, So... um, that, that, you know, I, I, we don't, you know, the idea of converting every single job into a kind of lower level cognitive one um, is, is, is balmy. I mean, because a lot of those things need to be, need, need, a lot of those functions need to be filled. And, and they can be filled, you know, perfectly well. Um, David, as you described this, there's something that uh, occurs to me, which is one of the things Francis and I have talked to a lot of our guests, as you know, because you listen to the show, uh, is... The, the cultural shifts that are happening, what broadly might be described as the culture war. Now, you've described a situation where you have a large number of young people mm. who are getting increasingly poor education, which is simultaneously becoming more expensive as it becomes less useful. Um, we, we've got a future where they are not likely to get much out of those degrees that they have. They've accumulated large debts. Uh, inequality is not being reduced and, in fact, rising. Mm. We keep hearing the talk of the 1% who are genuinely accumulating more and more of the gains that society makes. Uh, Social mobility is sort of sluggish in terms of how it's growing. Is that all the recipe for the sort of BLM stroke, whatever culture war stroke, cultural revolution stuff? Absolutely. I mean, I I think think it's a a good observation um, and I, I... I, I share that idea. I mean, I do think that underlying um, quite a lot of the the kind of eruptions of political emotion, <clears throat> whether it's BLM or the kind of Sanders movement in America, Jeremy Corbyn here, Mélenchon in France, you know, you know if you listen to the people or would see them, they, they often tend to be sound anyway, sort of quite educated and middle class. I mean, I think we have created a crisis of expectations, <clears throat> as I was saying earlier, um, we haven't taken account of of the kind of in, inevitable diminishing returns. Um, but I mean, public policy has been based on an illusion. It's been based on the illusion that the professional cognitive class will just go on growing and growing and growing. Mm. I mean, it, it's kind of what lies behind so much of education policy. Um, you know, obviously, social mobility policy. Um, and, and even kind of economic productivity policy, but it is failing on all counts. Um, but partly because we've kind of, as I say, as I keep saying, we've reached peak head. If you look at the social class schema, I think it's the ONS social class schema for the UK. It's seven or eight classes. I think seven. Um, the top two classes are the professional and managerial class, higher and lower, essentially. First two classes. If you go back to two thousand. About 35% of the adult population were classified as, as either higher or lower managerial professional. If you look at um, last year, or maybe been this year, I looked at the figures, it's 37%. Okay, it's gone up slightly, but it's, you know, this, this figure was growing very fast in the, in the 70s, 80s, um, because we were creating many, much more room at the top, as the social mobility academics call it, um, and we're not any longer. Um, so we, we, you know, we, we've got to we've got to adjust how we play the game. I mean, it's no longer, you know, if anything, it's going to shrink. Uh, that that thirty seven percent is probably going to shrink. So we've got to um, 
we got to think about doing things differently. And that does involve, you know, raising, raising the status, both of basic jobs, but also of, 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 of care jobs and, and, and technical, technical manual jobs. One of the things that I found very interesting in your book was you would, when you were talking about the impact this is having on the people who are doing degrees, particularly mental health. Could you mm. go into that a little bit for us? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, we're an outlier in higher education mm. in two respects. One is that we, uh, we send everybody to a classical university. Most advanced countries have a sort of differentiated system of post-school education, which includes what used to be our polytechnics. Uh, or some some variation on on um, kind of higher technical colleges, vocational colleges. Uh, you know, you've got the community colleges in America, you've got the Fachhochschule in Germany. Uh, I mean, they are actually both technically classified as universities, but they're very very different to universities in many ways. Um, so we 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 created after, as you mentioned earlier, after ninety two, everybody goes to um, it's a full it's, it's for almost universally full-time, full of, young, full of 18, 19-year-olds, full of young people. Um, it's full-time. It's three or four years. It's, the courses are very academicized. They're taught by academics, not by teachers, as it were. Um, and, you know, if you're doing, you know, it's true that a lot of the courses, perhaps particularly in the new universities, the, the universities that used to be polytechnics, are, uh, are vocational courses. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're doing nursing or surveying or construction management. But look at what a construction management degree is teaching. It's got all lots of general stuff about accountancy and business. You know, it's got it's got a kind of half of it. It's got a business studies degree. Um, you know, thirty or forty years ago, you'd have become a construction manager because you'd been sort of spotted on the construction site as a, as a, mm-hmm. as a capable, responsible person, and you'd, mm-hmm. you'd have you'd have been promoted, and you'd have, and you'd have gone off, and you'd have done some block release course or part time sandwich courses or whatever. And now. You know, you and and the other point, the other way in which we are an a complete outlier is, is not only in the kind of uniformity of the classical university structure, um, it's also in the disproportionate number of people who go as residential students. Mm. You know, Seventy to eighty percent, and I mean this is something I talked about more in my last book, The Road to Somewhere, is one of the kind of causes of the cultural divide is to do with social networks, is to do with who you know. You know, in most countries, you go to university in your hometown. So, which means that you, that, you know, okay, so you're a bit cleverer or a bit more academically able than some of the other people in your school, but you remain friends with the people who go off and become electricians and plumbers. They remain in your friendship group. That doesn't happen here, anything like so much. And, you know, I and mean, this is one of the things that really, really irritates me about, about the kind of the, the way that the political class has been wringing its hands over regional inequality, say, over, over recent decades, um, while at the same time encouraging, uh, in, encouraging an expansion of higher education, which sucks out all the most able kids from working class towns like your Mansfields and your Rotherhams. You know, they lose 20 or 30% of their brightest kids every year to residential universities and they invariably never go back. So, you know... You can't blame them. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, no. I mean, uh, that would be the clip that, that goes viral out of this interview. <laughs> so you go, no, you yeah. can't. <laughs> Maybe you can't. And of course, you know, one of the really attractive things about, about our university system for kids is, is the three years away from mum and dad. Right. I mean, you know, partly subsidised by us taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, it does change the nature of education, though, in the sense that it ceases necessarily to be about 
getting the grades or getting a good degree and it becomes a sort of edutainment thing as yeah. well, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, where you're sort of away from adult supervision so you can have all the fun you want without necessarily learning very much. Yeah, and, the, and, 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 and yeah, the universities that function then as sort of credentialises, yes. you know, I mean, it's not... You know, they're not particularly adding any any value. I mean, perhaps in a way, particularly Russell Group universities that are stuffed full of kids from private schools and grammar schools, who don't, you know, and they're not necessarily learning a huge amount. If you're doing a humanities course, you know, what you learn, you probably forget. And a lot of people, including David Soskis, who was one of the architects of the Tony Blair fifty percent target, he, he says actually this is the most valuable thing about about universities: the three years that you spend. Um, Getting getting to know people from very different backgrounds, social class, ethnicity, uh, these days too, and um, and you learn kind of social and even political skills. You know how to set up a university society, how to organise a political meeting, and these are useful things. But the idea that this, you know, I mean, it's also extremely expensive for our society to send all those kids away, and it has these damaging value divide implications too. Um, it makes us a more divided society, and most other countries don't send anything like the same proportion of kids to, uh, to residential universities, and they seem to do okay. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't seem to be in a sense... I mean, you could argue perhaps that it contributes to the, the sort of creative economy that we are increasingly going to depend on, that that, that three years away from home and... Um, but, but actually, sorry, you, you were asking about the... I mean, it's also a great, um, a great strain on a lot of kids. Mm. Um, I mean, I mean, I, I, I come from an upper middle class background. I went to a boarding school before I went to university, so it was water off a, off a duck's back for mm. me. But most kids, actually, even privately educated kids these days, tend not to board. So, and I think for a lot of kids, you know, being away from home is very discombobulating. Well, they won't have that problem going forward, yeah. then, will they, with the <laughs> coronavirus? Uh, so, so the the idea of having fewer people go to university may may happen naturally as it becomes less appealing. But mm. unfortunately, David, we've run out of time. Uh, it's a great book. I r- thoroughly recommend everybody get it. And I hope uh, some of the people who have the influence and ability to change some of these things who do watch and listen to our show will take uh, some of what you're saying in the book on board and destroy every university in the country. <laughs> no. uh, but uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back. Mm. Uh, and as you know, the last question uh, we always ask is, what yeah. is the one thing mm. that we're not talking about that we really should be? Oh, uh, God, I'm so cross on myself because um, I prepared a really brilliant answer and then I, then I wrote it down even. Then I, and then I forgot As a what teacher, it was. I've heard this excuse yeah. many times, David. I've got to be honest with you. The dog ate my homework. <laughs> but I want to, can I, can I, can I, it's not so much on what we're not talking about, but what we're not doing. Mm. Um, even better. Um, and, and it's a kind of, it's not a particularly big picture thing. It's rather a kind of techie, nerdy thing. I think the, the state is missing a huge opportunity to use its kind of convening power combined with the, with the digital world to create, to make it so much easier for people to say, volunteer. Do you kind of just-in-time volunteering? Why don't we have, you know, there, there ought to be, I mean, it would need to have the state's kind of imprimatur on it, and it should be advertised everywhere on the kind of tube, on the TV, that you go to this one portal and you put, you know, and you type in your postcode and you find out, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of people have very busy lives, but they still want to kind of, and we've seen this actually in the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, you know, a huge amount of volunteering. Let, let's try and keep some of that um, going forward. 
Um, you know, you should be able to type in your postcode and then find out, you know, it may be little stuff. Like there's some little old lady who lives up the street from you who just needs her drugs picked up from, from Boots mm. or you know, needs to be taken out for a walk every, every you know, for, for an hour every, every weekend or something. And little things that you could sort of fit in around, you know, even if you have a family and you're very busy. Mm. Um, and, and, of course, one of, one of the issues, I guess, would be security. Um, uh, and There's ways to deal with that. But well, it's well, exactly. a good I mean, idea. It's interesting how the whole kind mm. of um, child protection thing, you know, seems to have been suspended for, the, for, for, for COVID volunteering. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, and that, and that could be applied to other things too. I mean... Another thing, actually, sorry, related thing that I've always had to be in my bonnet about is, um, and I'm, I'm not going to go into a whole Germanic spiel. I mean, I, I, I'm an admirer of the... very nicely with the reputation of the show, David. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we'll just unfurl the banner behind you. <laughs> but I, I did spend three years in Germany. I know the German system well, and, and, and there are a lot of things about it to admire. Uh, and a lot of those things cannot very easily be translated into into the British context. But one thing that could very easily be is there's something called the Beruf Actuel that all kids who leave school get, uh, I think particularly the kids who are going on to an apprenticeship, is essentially tells them what all the kind of the options are for apprenticeships and what the jobs that you could then mm. you mm. could then apply for once you'd got this apprenticeship. And what they pay, and and so on. And I don't see why we, why don't we have something like that mm. in the UK? Mm. Just you know, again, it's something the state would need to do. It would have to have the kind of imprimatur of a, and it, you know, you could update it every year, and it could have not only here are all these all these different jobs, and this is what they pay, and this is what this is the training you need in order to get it. You know, mm. so you know, a coding course is going to cost you five grand. What subsidy might you be able to get from the state to do it? You know. Mm. Why isn't it all just written in one place? I mean, it, you can probably find out. It's probably it's all out there somewhere, but it's kind of it's in a, it's it's all it's scattered everywhere. We should just you know this is a perfect example of what the state ought to be able to do very simply. I mean, you could you know someone at the DWP ought to be able to do that in kind of two days. Just gather all this stuff together, put it in one place, produce a little booklet for it, or have it online and, and update it every year. And I think it would make it would make the whole sort of feel, particularly now with so much uncertainty, it would make it would create so much more visibility and transparency for, for people in this very um, unsure situation. It's a really good point and so unlike the Germans to centralise everything, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for coming back, David. Uh, make sure you get head, hand and heart. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for coming oh. back and we will see you in a week's time. With uh, an episode or a live stream, they go out... Tuesday to Sunday, always at 7 p.m. UK time. So it won't be in a week's time, it'll be a couple of days from now. We'll see you soon. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.